Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, a new route for enteric virus infection and an exotic kind of matter made from only neutrons. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Patrick-Chow. More than 1 billion people every year are infected by enteric viruses. These are a group of viruses, including things like norovirus, that infect the gut and typically cause a range of unpleasant symptoms, like diarrhoea and vomiting, and in more serious cases, they can lead to death. Now, these viruses have a specific route of transmission, which has been very well established. Or at least, so has been thought. As this week in Nature, there's a paper suggesting that researchers might have been overlooking a very important way that enteric viruses spread. I called up one of the authors of the new paper, Nihal Altonbonet, to find out more, and started by asking what is the conventional thinking on the transmission route of these viruses. These viruses infect the intestines and replicate in the intestines and then shed into the feces and then spread to the next individual through the fecal oral transmission route. And what that simply means is the virus in the feces gets ingested and make their way down to the intestine and the cycle begins anew. Yeah, and that's sort of the first thing you see when you Google these viruses and you see stuff like you need to wash your hands, you need to think about sanitation and that sort of thing. And also, you know, enteric means intestinal, so they sort of have it in the name. But you actually saw in your new paper something quite different. Yes, so what we found is that these viruses also replicate very robustly in the salivary glands and shed in saliva. And that saliva is infectious in itself. And so the first thing that occurs to me is it's been so sort of well understood that they have this sort of fecal oral route. I'm wondering 
why you were looking at the saliva in the first place. How did you get there? We got there in a sort of unexpected way. The animal models to study these viruses are typically very young mice who are still suckling on their mother's breast milk. So when we were studying these viruses for another question, we would inoculate these pups orally with these viruses and then put them back to suckle on their mother's breasts. And what we noticed is that their mothers were getting infected with these viruses, but unusually only their mother's breasts were getting infected. And we ruled out that the mothers were getting infected through, say, licking the feces of their pups. And we ruled out a number of other scenarios. And what we were left with was that the pups were transmitting these viruses potentially through their saliva during the process of breastfeeding. So it was really a surprise because the term enteric virus, our classical way of thinking about these viruses was that only these viruses would replicate in the intestines. And so what were the sorts of things that you were observing? What were the sorts of like specific things that you were seeing that were telling you that this is definitely happening in the saliva? So we were seeing the viruses replicating inside the salivary gland cells and being shed in copious amounts into the saliva. And we would collect the saliva from these animals and orally inoculate other animals with just the saliva. So completely bypassing the classical fecal transmission route. And we were able to show that that saliva was actually quite infectious and was able to transmit the enteric infection to other animals. And this work as well, you've discussed it in mice and obviously humans, we're very self-interested animals. So I'm wondering what the sort of likelihood is that a similar transmission route through saliva occurs in humans. We think it's very likely. And in fact, when we look into the literature, there has been many reports of these viruses being detected in human saliva. But it has always been chalked up to being a contamination from a person, for instance, vomiting and thus getting their oral cavity contaminated. But among these reports, there are instances where the researchers would note that the individual was asymptomatic. There was no vomiting, yet there was copious amounts of these enteric viruses in their saliva. So little things like that suggest to us that this is likely to take place among humans as well. And do you have a sense of how much of a factor this could be in how the viruses are spreading? Is it equivalent to the fecal root? Is it more? Is it less? Do you have a sort of sense of that? My feeling is that it could be a much more prevalent route of spreading of these viruses. And there are couple of reasons for this. So one is we are constantly spewing out salivary droplets when we're talking, when we're coughing, when we're sneezing. And so viruses being in these droplets could get to other individuals quite efficiently, we would think. Secondly, 
The feces actually, although it does contain these viruses, it's also quite a hostile environment in the sense that the feces contains a lot of degradative enzymes, degradative molecules. All of these degradative activities we have some evidence for actually make the fecal viral population less infectious. And so in the saliva, we think that the viruses may be more stable and in fact, more potentially infectious even. So then what do you think are the implications of this work? Well, there are multiple implications. One is, I think we need to rethink the way we devise our public health practices for preventing the spread of these viruses. And, you know, it could be even simply wearing a mask. I mean, we're all used to wearing masks now to prevent coronavirus transmission. It could be that when there is an outbreak in, say, a school or a cruise ship, wearing a mask might be one of the ways to slow down the spread of these viruses. That was Nihao Autumbonet from the National Institutes of Health in the US. To find out more about this research, head over to the show notes for a link to the paper. Coming up on the show, after decades of hints of its existence, researchers may have finally created something that is only known to exist in neutron stars. And it may be able to tell us more about the glue that holds matter together. Stick around for that. Before then, though, just time to flag up that we've got a new podcast series beginning on Friday. It's called Nature Hits the Books, and unsurprisingly, it's a book show. My first guest will be the science journalist Ed Yong, and we'll be chatting about his new book, An Immense World, which is all about the realm of animal senses. And I tell you what, we cover some ground, looking at how our own view of the world is just a sliver of what can be sensed by other creatures, and how this blinkered take has affected our understanding of the animal world. Look out for that wherever you get your shows. Back to today's show, though, and here's Dan Fox with this week's research highlights. Billions of years ago, as the solar system was forming, Jupiter became the biggest planet by devouring kilometre-sized space rocks. Until recently, scientists had not been able to peer inside Jupiter and determine its composition. So, to have a look... Researchers used data from NASA's Juno spacecraft to analyse the gravitational pull of the gas giant and work out what lies inside. The team assessed various models of the planet's interior and found that the model which best matched the data had surprisingly high amounts of elements heavier than hydrogen and helium. These heavy elements suggest that Jupiter consumed large space rocks as it formed and rules out another theory – that a diet of many tiny pebbles led to Jupiter's size. Read that research in full in Astronomy and Astrophysics. Megalodon, the extinct shark that was one of the largest carnivores ever to have lived, feasted on the flesh of other top predators, according to chemical analysis of its teeth. The relative amounts of two forms of nitrogen in a carnivore's teeth indicate whether they ate animals that were high or low on the food chain. Researchers analysing the nitrogen in the teeth of several extinct and living shark species found that the ratio within megalodon teeth suggests that its diet was rich in other large predators. This probably included now-extinct whales and even other megalodons, In fact, it dined on so many big predators that the shark 
has no analogue among living marine carnivores. This discovery makes the gigantic shark's extinction 3.5 million years ago even more mysterious. One theory is that Megalodon was outcompeted by the great white shark, but this research found that ancient great whites had a diet containing fewer high-level predators than the Megalodon, so it may not have competed with the larger shark. Sink your teeth into that research in Science Advances. Last week, after decades of searching, physicists have found something that's never been seen before in a lab. A system of four neutrons, a tetraneutron. This is exciting for physicists, as theorists have disagreed wildly on whether tetraneutrons can even exist, and finding out will shape our understanding of the glue that binds an atomic nucleus together, the strong nuclear force. You see, protons and neutrons happily sit within the same nucleus. Two of each make a helium atom, for example. But for many years, physicists have wondered whether it might be possible to switch out the two protons in helium for two more neutrons to make a tetraneutron. But it isn't quite as simple as just kicking out some protons. Although the strong nuclear force draws neutrons together, a quantum rule called the Pauli exclusion principle has the opposite effect. So putting four neutrons together makes the whole thing inherently unstable. Proving that the tetraneutron exists, even fleetingly, and understanding its properties would help physicists to pin down the interplay between these forces, and even understand the similar rules that underpin neutron stars the nucleus's massive cosmic cousin. Now, a group of researchers claim to have done just that. Reporter Lizzie Gidney caught up with one of them, Stefanos Pascalis, to find out more, and started by asking, just how long have physicists been trying to track down the tetraneutron? This is going on for six decades. So from the 1960s, people have been trying to detect this particle. Wow, that's a, long, that's a long time. So for your experiments, you started with a radioactive isotope of helium called helium-8. And that's cool because it basically has a normal helium nucleus at its core. So two protons, two neutrons. But then these four extra neutrons floating about it. How did you go about turning that into your tetraneutron? So the idea we had is that inside helium-8, it is well understood that there is a well-formed alpha core. The alpha core is made up of two protons and two neutrons, and it's a very compact nucleus that forms the nucleus of normal helium-4 we see around us. So the idea was that if we suddenly remove this alpha particle, it's like pulling the carpet underneath, (laughs) then it will leave these four neutrons in this configuration that they were around this cluster, but without the cluster anymore. And those neutrons there can interact and give us access to study this tetraneutron system. So that's how we generate and we access it. And it's been a pioneering approach, which hadn't been tried before. So you did that exact thing. You knocked out the alpha particle. How did you then measure what you saw? Because neutrons aren't charged, so they don't really interact with anything, right? So how can you measure what they look like after you've knocked the alpha particle out? The way we performed the experiment was to measure very precisely the proton which constituted the target in our experiment and the alpha particle that we knocked out. So those two are charged particles, which means we can 
analyze them with a very strong superconducting magnet and determine their momenta. Once we measure the properties of those two particles very precisely, we can reconstruct what was the state of the four neutrons that we left behind. And when we did this, we saw, to our surprise, two very distinct structures. One that we interpret to be the decay, the phase space decay of these four neutrons, and one which we can only associate with this resonance structure of the tetraneutron, so a very characteristic structure that these four systems prefer. And why do you call this system of, of four neutrons together a resonance rather than, you know, a tetraneutron? A resonance state is a state that is quantum mechanically well formed, but is not bound enough to form a stable system. This resonance system then lives for a very short time before it decays. And this reflects basically that the system has a certain frequency at which it resonates. It has a characteristic frequency which describes it. So it has a frequency that tells you this is something other than just four free neutrons. There is something going on that binds them together, but it's just kind of gone in the blink of an eye. Exactly. So it's this uh, characteristic frequency, this natural frequency that tells us that it's something more than just for particles flying apart. And it sounds like an incredibly complex thing to detect. And I think over the years, there have been some other claims in the past that people have seen something similar. What makes this discovery different or what makes it a discovery? In this particular case, because of the reaction that we chose to generate these four neutrons, we obtained a very clean signal standing on what we call a very low background. So we had a very statistically significant signal in our experimental measurement. The statistics also that we got has been many times greater than what people have used before. So the, the previous claims were with four events in 2016 that a lot of people of the community were having trouble to accept that it was a statistically significant result. And in our case, we had about 400 events uh, corresponding to this population of a four-neutron system. So now that we have a tetraneutron, can it help us to pin down which of the models that describe the strong nuclear force, the force that binds this temporary system, which of those are correct? What have we learned from this experiment? Well, we've learned that this interplay between the strong nuclear force and the Pauli exclusion principle uh, have to be handled very carefully in order to be able to reproduce such systems. And by fine-tuning these interactions on our models, we can then apply them to other systems all the way up to astrophysics, astrophysical sites such as supernovas where all the elements that we see around us are created. So understanding and constraining the models through nuclear physics experiments like this can help us build and validate these models and extend them all the way to the universe and these astrophysical sites like supernovas and neutron stars. So this kind of data could actually give us some kind of data point that helps us to understand what's going on in a neutron star millions and millions of kilometers away. Exactly. Yes, it will be an important ingredient for this research field as well. That was Stefanos Pascalis from the University of York here in the UK, chatting to reporter Lizzie Gibney. To find out more about tetraneutrons, check out the paper in the show notes. 
Last Friday, the US Supreme Court struck down the constitutional right to abortion. In the wake of this ruling, nature has been turning to research to ask what we can expect in the coming weeks and months. And joining me to discuss this is Lauren Wolf, Nature's America's Bureau Chief. Lauren, hi. Hi. Before we get into the science, could you just lay out in practical terms what this decision means for people in the US? Well, what this decision means at its most bold is that the federal right to an abortion in this country is no longer protected. And that means that the Supreme Court has now handed over decisions about abortion rights to individual U.S. states. And ever since Roe versus Wade, which is the decision from 1973 that protected abortion rights, states have trying to chip away at it, gotten sued, and we've kind of gone back and forth. And up until now, there's never been a time when Roe was really, really threatened. But now that this has happened, it goes back to the state's decision in terms of what the abortion rights are for people living in that state. And a lot of states had what are called trigger bans. So there were about 13 of those states that have trigger bans, which means immediately upon Roe being overturned, those states ban abortion or severely restrict it in some way. And we've already seen a lot of those go into effect. Um, For a lot of other states, they're likely to either ban or severely restrict abortion. And there are some states that actually protect abortion rights. And so you get this patchwork of rights and people will have to make a decision about whether to continue their pregnancy or pay the expense and travel to a state that allows abortion to go get one there. And this decision was not unexpected. It was leaked several weeks ago. What have researchers been saying since then? Yeah, you know, we talked to people when it was leaked by Politico, and we talked to people, you know, just on Friday when the official ruling came down. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's not that it was unexpected, but when you actually see it on paper, it's still really hard to come to grips with for a lot of people for whom might seek abortion, but also for people who have been studying abortion and who have shown through research that it's an important right for people to have. And scores of researchers, so economists, folk working in the public health sphere and what have you, submitted evidence to the Supreme Court last year when it heard the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is ultimately what led to Roe versus Wade being overturned. Yeah, so we did a story about this, the fact that these researchers were submitting evidence to the court when the court decided to take this case or hear it. And all of these researchers, as you noted, hundreds of them submitted what are called amicus briefs to the Supreme Court ahead of time. And the important thing to say here is that the court doesn't have any obligation to take into consideration these briefs. And people from all sides can submit them. But basically, they're evidence or, you know, opinions, etc., that could help in the weighing of the case. And so because this is such an important case, and because there is decades of research about what the right to an abortion means to people and what it means to them in terms of their health and the economics of the country, these researchers supported that evidence. And maybe you can lay out some of that evidence then that researchers did submit. Maybe as a baseline, the important thing to think about is, you know, who are the people who usually get abortions? Those are some of the most fundamental pieces of research that are done. And, you know, some of these studies have shown that in the U.S., one in four women will get an abortion by age 45, at least in the time before Roe was overturned. 75% of those women who choose to have an abortion come from a low-income bracket. And almost 60% of them already have children and can't afford or, or don't want any more. 
Usually the people who don't have access to birth control and who might be in a position to need an abortion are younger people or poorer people. And people below the poverty line have a five times higher rate of unintended pregnancies than people in higher income brackets. So that's kind of a baseline level. And when people look at the safety of a legal abortion procedure, what they see is that the death rate involved with abortion is actually, for the person receiving it, much lower than, than it would be if they had gone through with a birth. It's just a fact that death during childbirth is a thing that happens. Another headline, though, is that in the U.S., maternal mortality is actually quite high compared to a lot of other high-income countries. And what is being predicted based on a post-Roe world is that those numbers in the U.S. are now going to get worse. And we're going to see, I should note, that they're going to go up disproportionately in minority groups, right? So also in the U.S., the maternal mortality rate for Black people, it is a lot higher than white people. And so those are the people who are often affected by seeking an abortion. And so we're expecting that those numbers are going to go up here too. And abortion rights can very much impact on other healthcare and economic aspects as well, right? So one of the biggest studies over the years that has delved into some of those issues is called the Turnaway Study. And, you know, as I explained earlier, right, there have been states that have challenged Roe versus Wade over the years and tried issuing their own laws and restrictions, kind of setting up maybe depressingly the perfect situation for researchers to study what happens when a person's able to get an abortion versus when someone is, quote unquote, turned away. And you adjust for age and all the other different factors, and you can see that the health care for people who have to go through with an unintended pregnancy, they have negative health outcomes, their children have negative outcomes. But if you just look at the economics, you can see, I'm just looking at one turnaway study result. But after five years of watching these two groups of people, you could see that the group that was turned away experienced a 78% increase in overdue debt and an 81% increase in financial events like bankruptcies and evictions compared to the other group, which didn't see any kind of change in terms of they were able to get their abortion and then, you know, went on with their lives. And they've done a lot of studies looking at also mental health, because that's one of the arguments that anti-abortion critics have made is that when people have an abortion, that they have some mental health issues such as depression or anxiety. And what these studies have shown is that that's not true. The two groups don't vary in that way. And one of the things you mentioned, Lauren, is that there is this kind of patchwork aspect to the US now in terms of where someone can access an abortion and where they can't. And there's been a lot of research into what effect this will have for people who want or need to travel to a clinic. Yeah, for sure. And those researchers have predicted that about 54% of U.S. women seeking abortions will have to travel further than they would have previously to get to their nearest abortion provider. And in terms of, you know, mileage, their travel distance would increase from about 36 miles on average to 274 miles, which of course, you know, can be a real financial burden. And so you'll see that I saw this statistic, you know, maybe three quarters of the the people who are seeking one will still find a way to get it. But the, the barrier will be enough to turn a quarter of people away from it. And one of the potential consequences of restricting 
axis is that people will end pregnancies without clinical supervision. What's the research saying about that? What researchers have said is what we're going to start seeing is for people who don't have the option of going to an abortion clinic to have the procedure, they will more often seek a medication abortion. And this is available. Places like the World Health Organization say that a medication abortion is safe and effective, used correctly, guided by people who know what they're doing. And so researchers are predicting that they're going to see more of that. And we are, I've already read articles today just showing that these pills are getting sold out and people are hoarding them, especially in states that are already seeing bans go into place. And I think then there's also the prediction that we're also going to see more laws put on the books to try to prevent people from gaining access to those types of pills. And of course, I think one other concern that researchers have is that for people who don't understand what a medication abortion is or know that it is available to them or, you know, where to get one, that they might try to take matters into their own hands in a different way, right? Self-manage an abortion in a different way. Researchers have definitely seen people who have tried taking other substances that are not safe or, you know, inserting things into their vaginas and then end up having, you know, some serious harm to themselves or to the child if they weren't successful. And so, I think that's another concern about what is to come. So often in our chats, we end with, and so what now? And in this case, it's such a huge issue. What are researchers thinking about as they move forward? Yeah, I think, you know, some of the researchers who have been studying this for years and years are going to keep doing that. They're going to keep looking to examine the effects of denying someone abortion rights because we have a whole new, unfortunately, set of experimental conditions so that in the future, when more policy decisions come up, that there will be even more evidence to be able to recommend what should and shouldn't be done. And separately from that, there's also just the issue of researchers, research organizations, research institutions, and how they can now, going forward, support the students and staff that they have who might now find themselves at a university in a state that doesn't allow abortion. And so I think that there's lots of questions in the coming days and months. And if you kind of look at this from the global perspective, in the past 25 years, you've seen 32 other countries have expanded abortion access based on the fact that you see this research and that it's good for society in terms of the well-being of individual people, their reproductive rights and equality. And so I think right now what we're all kind of struggling with a little bit is that the U.S. has now taken this step backward instead of forward with these other countries. Well, thank you for joining me today, Lauren. And listeners, we'll put links to all of our stories relating to this ruling in the show notes. That's all for today for the podcast. But there's a new video on our YouTube channel. It's part of the Inequality Special that we featured on last week's show. And it's all about the stats and figures that illustrate the unequal toll of the pandemic. You can find that on our YouTube channel and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.